Well, it's good to see everybody. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Justin. I'm a pastor here, uh, and we are having Acoustic Sunday, or as Tiffany so aptly put, Semi-Acoustic Sunday. Uh, but we just really like once a month to have a more intimate set of worship, uh, and we get some special things, special moments of worship that we had uh, today so far. And we are, we are jumping back into our series. We took a three-week break. Uh, for Palm Sunday, Easter, and then last week we had a guest speaker uh, to speak around depression and anxiety. If you weren't here for that and you missed it, jump on our podcast on the app. I posted it on our website. You just click sermons and it will take you to the podcast. Really incredible sermon last week. Really practical application on how to deal with these things that all of us deal with. To a certain degree, some more than others, but something that all of us experience. Uh, today, we're back in Deuteronomy. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, but we're going to be speaking from Deuteronomy 17, verses 2 to 9, and also 1 Corinthians chapter 5. These scriptures pair together, um, and we'll see why later on. But for those of you that are new to this sermon series, what we've been learning about is the character of God throughout Deuteronomy. And something about God that we have to understand is that he never changes. His character is unchanged. Throughout the thousands of years of human history, God has not changed. And so when we read about him in the Old Testament, we get to learn about God and learn about the different things uh, of his character. Now we can appreciate that. But what has changed uh, that we learned about God is his relationship with us. Thanks Be to God, because of Jesus Christ, we have a different covenant, a new covenant, and a different relationship with God today. Uh, And so we learn about that, and that's why we're going to be reading from 1 Corinthians 5 and Deuteronomy 17 today, to learn about how the change in the covenant has happened, but how God has not changed. And we're going to anchor our talk today in Deuteronomy chapter 29, 18. It's how Moses, he is the speaker in Deuteronomy, ends this kind of talk in this, uh, in this book where he is preaching through the law, preaching through the Ten Commandments and the law to Israel before they enter into the Promised Land. And before they get in, he says this to them. He says, Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations, the nations they were about to conquer. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. So today we're going to talk about the topic of sin in the church. Sin in the church. Uh, this, is, this is not your everyday topic on a Sunday morning, uh, but it is an important topic to talk about. And you'll hear from mistakes that I made uh, and some past experience why It's an important topic and some mistakes that other churches in the Bible and communities have made. Uh, And and this is is the covenant summed up as we're talking about the old covenant. Uh, It's summed up in this. Love God first and foremost with everything that you have and also love your neighbor. So Moses, before the Israelites enter into the promised land, says, beware of anybody that walks away from the covenant. Beware of a person, a man or a woman, or a tribe, which is a larger body of people, or a clan, which is an even larger body of people, if they walk away. Beware. Why? Because they are a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. 
You know that a root is the foundation of any plant. They can't grow without a root. And whatever kind of roots that you have will determine the type of fruit that a tree or a plant has. And so Moses says, anybody that walks away from the covenant, their root is going to be a bad root. And that means if you partake of the fruit of that bad root, if you partake of the fruit of what they are doing, what is going to happen? You are going to be poisoned. It is going to be poisonous and bitter and can sometimes lead to your own death and downfall. And that's why this topic is an important topic because of the ramifications of eating the fruit of a bad root. I wasn't expecting to be rhyming this entire service, but (laughs) apparently I will be. Uh, So we're going to read the law concerning these people in the Old Covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 2. We're going to read the law given to Moses and to the people surrounding this. And so read with me on the screen. Moses says, If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, what we just read, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun or the moon or any host of heaven which I have forbidden, and it is told you, and you hear it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put To death. A lot of repeating going on here, how important this is. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witness shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Let's unpack this. So, this is the law that Moses gives to the people concerning this. What happens if someone breaks the covenant? So this this is the law in three parts that Moses lays out. He says, first, you have to inquire diligently. Investigate. Don't just take someone's word for it that someone else has broken the covenant. Because what happens a lot of time in human societies is this little thing called gossip. Right? Where people maliciously speak poorly of somebody or sinfully speak against somebody and they... And then you have this game of telephone that goes on. You ever play that game where you speak into one person's ear and then that person speaks into another person's ear, speaks into another person's ear. And then after 20 people or sometimes after the two people, depending on who's sitting to your right or to your left, you see that it's, it's a crazy ending what happened to the story. So Moses does not take this lightly. He says, you got to inquire diligently. We can't just be people that gossip one another about one another and then go and stone people to death because of somebody else's gossip. That is just not how it works. He says, get more than one witness. We can't just take, this is not a he said, she said kind of thing. There has to be more than one person that witnesses this. Now, one of the Ten Commandments that everybody's pretty familiar with, uh, it says, there's a Ten Commandments that says, do not bear false witness. A lot of people, in a poor translation of this, they say, do not lie. That's actually not the Ten Commandments, because there are certain scenarios in life where it is appropriate to lie. Uh, For instance, if you think of the Holocaust, uh, where the Nazis were going around searching for Jews, and there were certain Germans 
that were hiding Jews in their house, the Nazis would go in and say, do you have any Jews in your house? And they would lie and say, no, that is an appropriate time to lie. So the Ten Commandments actually do not say, do not lie. It says, do not bear false witness. Now, what does that mean? It means that when you are in a court of law, when you are bringing an accusation against somebody, the penalty of that accusation many times meant that person's death or complete separation from community. And so it was a really, really big thing to accuse somebody falsely because of the ramifications against that person's life. And so in that community, bringing a false accusation or a false witness against somebody was a really big no-no. And we have to understand this uh, commandment in light of the entire covenant and, and what it meant. And so Moses says that you can't bring an accusation against somebody with just one witness. You need at least two or three people to come and have witnessed the same thing. And, to, and we can't do this in a false manner because of what it means for the other person. And then the third thing with this law is they get the death sentence. This is serious. This is not... Uh, something to be willy-nilly about. The person, and, and to show the seriousness of, uh, of this, the person who was a witness against this person was actually the one who was to cast the first stone. Uh, and I think this is a, yet another layer of protecting against false witness because the person that was due is you, you really have to be sure about what you just accused this person of. This is not just gossip. This is not you heard from the grapevine. This is you saw this person break the covenant of God and you are very secure in this accusation. So what does this tell me about God? This tells me two things about God. Two things. It tells me, one, that he is wise. And wise, God's wisdom knows that evil and sin spreads rapidly. Now, if you have not been in the church for a long time or you do not consider yourself a Christian, you may not have experienced this wise truth yet, but anybody that has been a Christian for a long time realizes that when there is a bad root in the church, that spreads rapidly. And God knows this. He knows the nature of sin, the desires of the eyes, John says, and the lust of the flesh. What happens, it entices people to sin with you. And so this is serious. And God's wisdom, he knows that if this does not take, get taken care of, it will affect the community. It may start with one person, then it will be a family, then it will be a tribe, then it will be a clan, as described here in the passage. And so we need to stop it as soon as it is found. And this is, and this is why when we have this attitude of, of kind of, oh, when you're in habitual sin personally, you find somebody in habitual sin, that's why my attitude or our attitude uh, is in, oh, God has grace for that. And we're going to talk about what that means more later. Uh, attitude. This is cause for us to be permanently kicked out of the presence of God. It's a very serious thing. And so we want to get it as soon as we find it. Uh, and then the second thing this tells me about God is that he is holy. And this is something that uh, a lot of times is not talked about today, in today's day and age, and, and kind of the new age churches or humanistic churches that pop up constantly, uh, we talk about the grace aspect of God, but not the truth, the holiness of God, why Jesus came down and had to die in the first place because of God's deep holiness, that sin cannot be in relationship with him. It cannot be in the same, the sin in, in, in his presence in heaven, in the holy of holies, sin is not 
allowed. That is why Satan was cast out. The minute that there was rebellion, Jesus tells him, I saw you fall like lightning. Yeah. Right? The speed of light. He fell out of heaven because of his rebellion or sinfulness against God. God, the God that we serve, is a holy God. And so, now we understand this. Uh, we are not in this age anymore. We're not in this covenant anymore. And so we're going to talk uh, about how this same concept is applied in the church in the New Testament. And we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to do that. And we're going to look at different points. We're going to read through the entire chapter, but we're going to stop at different points. So the first part we're going to read through is this is, this is a wild story. I'm just preparing you for that. Right now, this, if you think like, man, I've seen the worst of it in church, let me tell you that they had just as many issues back then in church that we have today. And that's why scripture is still speaking to us today. And so Paul planted this church in, in Corinth, um, which is part of the, the, the Greek culture. And after he plants his church, he leaves for a little while. Some craziness happens. He hears about it. He writes them a letter. This is one of the things that's crazy that's happening there. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans, not even tolerated among the unsaved people. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. All right, so just in case you missed it, there is a guy sleeping with his mother-in-law in the church. And the church did nothing about this. And so Paul writes them, and he says, there's things going on in your congregation that not even non-Christians find in their circles, that you actually have a man that is sleeping with his mother-in-law. And that this is kind of okay practice among you. So what is Paul's solution for this? It's not execution. It's excommunication. Paul says this person is not to be part of the church anymore. He says, kick this person out. Now, he doesn't stop there. We're going to continue reading. Paul pronounces judgment over this person in verse 3. He says, for though absent in body, he's talking about himself, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So Paul pronounces judgment over this guy, and this is his judgment. He says... In this situation, I am giving this man over to Satan. Pronounce this man given to Satan. And you may be thinking, this actually feels worse than someone dying. Um, and that's an appropriate feeling to have because I think mentally, I always put myself in this person's shoes and I'm thinking, man, if I messed up, I'm going to be handed to Satan. Uh, but here's what Paul is doing. Paul says... Let him be given to Satan so that he can experience trouble. 
See, when he experiences trouble, the hopes here is that this man who has sinned in the congregation has not repented, that is, in the sin with sleeping with his mother-in-law, is that he will repent and that he will come back into the community and that even though he will go through physical pain, he will experience spiritual well-being in the long run. That this man will, yes, suffer physically in the flesh, but that for eternity, he will still be able to live with God. And you know what, this is, this is actually one of the things I appreciate about God. How many of you know that God will allow us to experience pain and suffering so that he will wake us up? You know, many times in our lives, I mean, many of you here, you may have come to church because of a scenario in your life that you feel like you hit rock bottom and you had nowhere to go. But guess what? If God did not allow for you to experience that in your life, you will have not have connected with him. And so Paul is saying here, saying, I'm handing this man over to Satan so that he will experience the destruction of the flesh, so that he will see where the desires of his flesh will take him, that it will lead him to destruction, but that he may be restored spiritually. I have seen in my own life, man, when I am arrogant, that's how true it is. I'm not used to the flimsy pulpit. I got that 50-pound behemoth usually that can withstand my hit. But when I am arrogant, when I'm feeling, you know what? I can, I can take care of this on my own. You know, I can do whatever I want. It doesn't really matter what God says. I, I'm good on my own. I got enough security. I got enough well-being. I have a good job, good family, whatever. What happens when we start thinking that way? A lot of times, God will allow for suffering, trouble, and sorrow to enter into our life so that we can be reminded. And this is why we preached on remembering God, because if we are not reminding ourselves of what God has done, guess what? He is going to have to start reminding you of what he has done. And you don't want God reminding you of what he has done in your lives. I would much rather that I remember what God has done in my life. And so Paul's hope here is that this person will repent. There was an organization that I worked with a while back, uh, and they worked specifically with drug addicts and uh, alcoholics. And uh, the organization wouldn't allow people to enter into their program of rehabilitation until they have correctly identified that the person wanting to come in hit rock bottom. And I thought that was interesting, so I asked them a little bit about them. I said, why is it? Because we know... Uh, if you've ever known an addict or alcoholic, you can realize that there's different levels of functioning within addicted lives or alcoholic lives. Some people are high functioning in alcoholism or in, uh, in drug abuse. And so, uh, but what happens usually is there is a downward spiral when you are an alcoholic or you are a drug abuser. And over time, some people it's quicker than others. There's a time where you completely spiral out, unravel, and you hit what is called rock bottom. You have nothing. You have you know, spent all your money. You have burned all your bridges, usually asking family members for money, never repaying it back. Uh, you have lost your job. You maybe have experienced divorce or separation from your immediate family. All of this stuff 
that's when you hit rock bottom. This organization said, really, they only work with people that have hit rock bottom because they had the highest success of people to never deal with addiction and alcoholism or drug abuse again. And I thought that was interesting because a lot of times I see the same thing in our life is we have to hit rock bottom before we realize what we are missing in God. Because many times our life goes where we go through a troubling time, God brings us out of the troubling time, and then we forget about what God has done. And so that's why the beauty of the relationship with God is what Paul says. He says, whether I am high or low, when I have abundance or need, no matter where I am, what, that I know to be content and have joy in God. And so we see this kind of same story playing out here, that there is actually hope for restoration. And sometimes that hope for restoration is actually you not being in a good place, is you not being in community, is you not being uh, enabled by people around you, but being cast out from all that and experiencing pain, experiencing suffering, experiencing trouble in your life so that eventually you can realize my soul is not well without Jesus. I cannot save myself. I cannot do this on my own. It doesn't matter what I have in my life. It doesn't matter who I thought I was, that actually without God, I am nothing. And I will keep on finding myself here over and over and over again unless I continually praise and be in the presence of God and obey him in all the things that I do. And so our eyes have to be opened a lot of time by deep pain and deep trouble. But let's continue because this is not the end. I think we have to, there, there is a balance in how we deal with people in community. But there is a point that Paul is bringing out here that we need to understand. We're going to continue in verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. The Corinthian church, they were just, they were proud. They were arrogant people. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are really, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the Corinthian church, they had been hung up on how wise they are. And Paul is writing dumbfounded at how foolish they are. Uh, and scripture speaks to us. The, the wisdom of God is foolishness of man, but the, foolishness of man, the, the wisdom of man is foolishness before God. And this is basically what is playing out here. What they thought they were so wise is true foolishness. And that's what Paul is trying to get through them. And he uses an example of leaven and bread. Now, most of us have no clue what leaven is. And so... Uh, if you've ever made bread before, and I'm not in this category, I've made things with bread, my favorite thing to make, peanut butter and jelly. I'm very familiar with it. Um, you know, if, if you've been in the church long enough, you realize that this is basically my meal of choice. Um, you know, if you ever want to go on the Justin Matera diet, just eat peanut butter and jelly every single day. That is it. That's how you get this beautiful, amazing figure. <laughs> Don't do that, honestly. <laughs> Paul 
uses the same line with the Galatian church. He says, a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. So leaven is an agent that uh, we use to throw in dough. All right, my wife is getting a little too excited. I had to do some research on cooking to get here uh, today. And a leaven is, is um, really, it's found in yeast. And so when you're making bread, you throw yeast into the dough, you put it in the oven, and that is the agent that does a lot of chemical craziness and cool things, and the bread rises uh, because of the leaven or the yeast. And so if you do not put the leaven in, if you don't get the yeast or the change agent, the catalyst, for it to rise, then what happens is you get flat bread. But the thing about leaven is, or yeast is you only have to throw a little bit in there. And when you throw a little bit, it affects a larger picture than what you thought. It's not like you sprinkle a little bit of salt, you know, and just that little area is screwed up if you put too much. And this, if you throw a little bit of yeast in that dough, then your whole thing is ruined if you put too much or you put too little. So there, there is not uh, this same sense of, okay, we could, you know, pick up that little chunk later. No. What happens is the entire loaf is gone because of that. You can't just throw a little. And so Paul is making a point right here. He says, even though this seems like a little issue in the community, guess what? It's going to have a huge impact on the community as a whole. Even Even if it seems like, oh, it's a little thing, if we allow people, say, in leadership to continue in their sinful habits, if we allow and make this part of our community and say, it's okay if you do this, it's okay if you do this, there's grace for that, there's grace for this, it's okay, it doesn't matter, it's not that important to God, well then, what will happen? We are asking for the destruction of our entire community. And that's, that's the truth. And so I want to, I, I had to learn this the hard way. I was like Corinth, uh, where I thought, you know, this is, this is not a big issue. I was a youth pastor for many years before I became a real pastor, as they say. Um, I, there's, there's a lot of people that say that. And uh, so when I was a youth pastor, you know, I, I was still going on human wisdom. And I was more interested in momentum and numbers than I was in discipleship and purity. I'm wondering if you caught that. I was more interested in in having a movement that grew and and drew in the crowds and made sure that we had the the seats filled and the the music pumping and and everything going and everybody on the same page than I was interested in people actually being obedient to Jesus. And so there was was this girl in the youth group uh, and she had a lot of influence in the youth group. Uh, And... I, it came to my attention that this girl was doing what you don't want kids doing in a youth group. Uh, and that is, that's, that's easy. Introducing other kids and the youth to drugs and introducing other kids in the youth group to sexual activity. If you're a youth pastor, those are the two main things that your job is to stop. <laughs> if you are not doing that, then you are failing miserably at your job. But because this girl had a lot of influence, because I knew that if I cut this off at the root and I confronted her with her sin, that she would go talk to a lot of other kids and that she would take her posse of 20 and 30 kids away with her and that it would kill all of our momentum. It would kill the crowd that we had coming on a Friday night. It would kill all the thing that I had worked so hard for to achieve. 
I did not confront her. And so I remember it hit me one day. We were having a leadership meeting uh, with the youth leaders, and one of my leaders didn't come to the youth meeting. And so I, I called him up. Me, I'm a very prompt person. You five minutes late, you get in a text. That's it. Where are you at? ETA question mark. <laughs> and no response. Later up, followed up. He told me something had happened with his mom. He wasn't able to come. A couple of hours later, there was uh, another youth member that felt a little bit convicted, called me up, said, Justin, you know, I was just at this girl's house. There were a lot of kids from youth. Uh, we were all smoking weed. Um, and there's just a, a lot of things that were happening in the group that wasn't good. And so my question is always, all right, tell me who was there. You know, they're going through the list, the usual company, and then they get to that last name, and that last name was the youth leader that was supposed to be in my main core youth leadership team. Um, and I, I just, I was devastated. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters since you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders if it is not those inside the church whom are, whom are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So Paul doesn't say this. This is what he's not saying. He's not saying uh, if somebody is in a simple relationship and they are not a Christian, he doesn't say don't hang out with that person. Because what happens if you do that? then you isolate yourself from the world. He says, it's not our job to judge people outside the church. And that's what we get wrong all the time as Christians. We're constantly saying, well, did you see what that person wore on their music video or what they wore to the Grammys? I mean, how disgusting. How can they even, who cares? That person is not a Christian. Like, what are you expecting? They don't abide by the same covenant and the same understandings that we do. But Paul's saying once they become part of the body, we're going to have a different talk. There's going to be something else that we have to talk about. See, he says, because if you separate yourself from the world, then you can't be on mission. You can't be like Jesus was who sat with the prostitutes, who sat with the tax collectors, the, the greedy thieves of his day, the worst of the worst, who, who helped the Samaritans, who talked with them. We can't be like that if we disconnect from the world and so much so, oh, the, the church is so much concerned about judging the world that they forget to keep up their own house. And so if, if, if that has been our mindset, let's look outside and, and point fingers and say, man, look how bad they're doing. But we, we forgot to take the plank out of our own eye, as Jesus says then there's something wrong. There's something that needs to be corrected. And what's interesting here is at the end of 1 Corinthians 5, Paul ends this discourse with the same ending that Moses gives in Deuteronomy 17. He says, purge the evil person from among you. So this is what hasn't changed. 
God's holiness. God's holiness has not changed. He is still the same holy God he was thousands of years ago. But what has changed is his covenant with his people. And so before, as we said, it was execution. But today, because of Jesus, our Savior has come. It is prayer for restoration through separation. We have to take sin seriously as a community. This is a directive for our church. We have to take sin seriously as individuals. If not, it will take root and it will bear poisonous fruit that will lead to destruction and death. If there has been greed, if there has been idolatry, if there has been sexual immorality, if there has been drunkenness, we have to take this as a time to repent before God. But also, we have to understand this about a church, that we have to be in real community with one another. And real community in one another is, hey, I saw that you were out with us last night and you got drunk. And I'm going to call you out on that this morning. That's real community. Real community is, hey, I know you're married and I saw you flirting with that girl, that guy. And I know this is an uncomfortable conversation right now, but it has to happen. See, many times people think real community is when everybody is smiling and happy and we get along. That's called pseudo-community, fake community. Real community is when I know my boy is being led to destruction by his actions and I go to his house and I say, you better stop this garbage because I know where it's leading you and you know where it's going. Real community is when I see one of my best friends doing something that I know that they shouldn't do that has led them to addiction, has led them down bad paths in the past. And so I step in front of them and I say, you should not be doing this. Don't you remember where this led you before? Before God reminds you, can I just remind you real quick of where you came from, of where this led before in your past? See, real community is not pretending sin doesn't exist so that we can have a lot of fun on a Sunday and jump up and down. Real community is confrontation with love. Real community says, I know this is going to be a really painful conversation, but let me have it with you before God has it with you. Real community is when you know you're loved by somebody because they tell you what you're doing wrong. Man, if, and, and if you don't know me and you're coming out your face to me, that's a different conversation. But the people that love me, that know me, that, I've, I've, that have permission to speak in my life, they have full well come at me and said, you know what, Justin, this is, this is bad. You better watch out for this. I've seen you fall into this before. Let's, let's talk about because we don't want to get it to that place. Real community is telling somebody, you know what? This is where the relationship has to end. I draw a line on this today. We, we learned about boundaries last week. It's setting a boundary. 
and saying, this will not enter into my house anymore. This will not enter into my camp. And I'm not doing this maliciously. I'm not being mean to you. I'm not angry at you. See, the problem is many times we have that conversation while we're hateful towards a person or resentful or bitter towards them. But because of Jesus, we can be loving towards them and have this conversation and say, this is the most loving thing I can do right now is to separate you from us so that you see the destruction of the flesh. And like the prodigal son, so that you can have your inheritance, you can take it, you can spend it, you can go do all the things that you have desired to do and realize at the end of that, the prodigal son was eating out of a pigsty with pigs because that's where his desires had led him. But guess what? When you are ready to come back, when you have realized that, man, what I'm doing is so ridiculous, it doesn't make any sense when you wake up from the blindness that has been put over your eyes and you begin to run back to the Father. Real community welcomes you, loves you, and casts your past and your sin aside. And just as the Father does, welcomes that young man into his embrace, his son, he puts on his signet ring, throws his robe around him, and kills a fatted calf, invites all his friends over, and parties that night. Let me tell you, I have separated people from the community before, and I have prayed for them, and then the day that they have returned, we have thrown parties for those people, and we have celebrated them. And when we say this isn't going to work anymore, we don't just not care about them anymore. Because that's not real community either. We pray for them. We love them. We care for them. And so somebody goes out. And we see them acting a fool. We don't gossip about them. We don't talk bad about them. We don't just start, oh, did you see what that person did? We confront them. Or maybe we know somebody in their life that can confront them and we bring it to them. Say, listen, I'm giving you this. You can tell the person I said this. You know, I've, I've had to do that a few times because I love and I care about their soul. But what has happened so many times in the church is we have played down the holiness of God and we've upplayed the grace of God. And we said, you know what? doesn't matter what you do. Your life is different. As long as you can get the things that we need to get done in church, as long as you continue to do your task, as long as you continue to get done what I want to get done or talk good about me, as long as you continue to tithe, come on, we're okay. But instead... I pray the prayer that David prayed when he committed adultery. He said this in Psalm 51. He said, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. 
Well, when was the last time that we did something and we got on our knees before God and we said, God, take not your Holy Spirit away from me. Cast me not away from your presence. Because we realize the things that we have done are depraved things in the sight of God. Or how many times have we have gravely sinned against God and we say, oh, he gets me, he knows my heart. But I pray that we become a church that is like David. That we understand God's holiness and we pray the prayer of mercy. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. God created me a clean heart. I know this heart is wicked and deceitful above all else, but it, with you, I'm a new creation, a new person. My mind is renewed. God created me a clean heart. God cast me not away from your presence. God, I want to be with you right now. I'm sorry, Lord. was the last time that we repented before him with our heart said God I know what I did is wrong and it's against everything that you've called me to do it's against everything that you've said but I thank God that I serve a God who forgives who is merciful that will allow me to enter into his presence through his son Jesus Christ when I come with a repentive heart believe today we have opportunity to repent as a community and as a people. Maybe it's repenting to a brother or a sister in the church saying, man, I'm sorry I haven't been keeping you accountable like I should when we had this conversation or I saw you doing this. Maybe it's a conversation between you and God right now. God, thank you for reminding me before I got to that place of brokenness. Created me today, God, a clean heart. Cast me not away from your presence, but renew the joy of your salvation in my life. Can you stand with me?